0: Before the rings of power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth with your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates.
1: Welcome to Window on the West. I'm here along with Michael Grumbine and Dan Coates. And welcome. To our very first episode reading through the Silmarillion. Uh, the Silmarillion is a really dense book with lots of names and locations, um, relationships that are kind of tough to get through. And that's why we're going to do this slowly, deliberately, with care, uh, but with a lot of fun. And so this is the way, the, the way to think about this being your first time listening probably to the Silmarillion here uh, as we go through it is this is more of a book club read through, not a uh, professorial read through. So we're here to really enjoy the books. We're not here to make it a history lesson that requires to know you you to know who's who and what's what. Uh, but we will be pointing out the things that we love, the things that confused us, uh, the things that made us stop for a minute and uh, think harder. Um, and so we hope you enjoy this. We hope that you're uh, you're here along for the ride for the whole way through. This is going to take a while, but we're really going to have a good time. Uh, and today we're going to be reading, uh, we're going through Aino uh, Lindelay, which is tolkien's creation myth and before we do uh, i thought guys i I pulled out some interesting uh things about about this which uh, i think mostly came from the tolkien gateway site which is a great place if you're looking for some facts and some quick overviews of different um different different things that you're reading through characters and events and things like that uh so i looked up uh and what's interesting is that it was first composed when he was 27 or 28 in 1918 it's 1920 somewhere around there, uh, and then he rewrote it again in the 30s, and then he rewrote it again in 1948, and then he rewrote it again in 1951. And according to Christopher Tolkien, it's one of the only parts of the Silmarillion where he actually went like manuscript to manuscript, where he didn't put it down for a long time and then completely rewrite it, which meant he would change names and characters and relationships and things like that. Whereas now with it, with this here, this here really had a direct like. Uh, first draft, second draft, third draft type of approach to it. Um, and in case this is now getting a little bit deeper, according to Tolkien and according to, I think it was in the Book of Lost Tales, that this here, uh, the Aenolindle was written by Rumil, 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 one of those names that are always hard to pronounce, uh, who, who was the first uh, elf to actually invent writing. He was the one who put down words and then and improved them, but uh, th- this is this is so not only is it the creation myth in the very beginning of everything else it's actually the first guy who actually wrote anything this is one of the first things he ever wrote down uh, (laughs) which i thought was interesting so with that with that in mind
0: let's dive in guys what are your first thoughts of aina lindele to me one of the thing the themes that has always stood out with the aina lindele is tolkien is recognized as being one of the more creative minds in terms of literature he, he he mostly. I mean, he is the main <clears throat> author of what the subgenre we now call fantasy. He was the one of the earliest and primary authors of fantasy, the fantasy subgenre. And so his mind is very creative. His world is creative. But when it came to the Einherjar, what's very interesting to me is it's clearly a, a version for his world of the story of Genesis. The the um, at least the the underpinnings of Genesis, I should say, because obviously the all the all the all of the stuff that happens with the Ainur and the music itself there are, there are tremendous differences. But in the sense that there is one Creator um, who creates all things, their angelic beings are created before the world, and then you have the world created. Now, now the way Tolkien has the world created is very interesting. But so the thing that's always stood out to me, which, which kind of fascinating, is. Do we find it to be lacking in creativity that Tolkien, when he goes to his creation story, basically lifts from the Judeo-Christian model, at least uh, you know, from its primary underpinnings, um, to make his creation story or or not? I mean, there,
1: there are other creation stories that I guess, you know, they, they, what is it? The, I can't remember which one is. The, uh, the, the world is on the back of a turtle. Is it, if it were far more... <laughs> directly not allegorical but a direct descendant of it like you would actually see the direct relationship between seven days and there are seven days you know things like that I, I don't I don't know how how much you can say just because it's a creation story with a god and angels in a sense that it resembles uh what christianity has in its uh, in its creation story
0: so to you it's different enough that it, it might be yeah. something entirely different
1: yeah i mean that's kind of like you could say you know, Joseph Campbell wrote uh, the Hero with a Thousand Faces and said every hero goes through these phases. Well, then you could say everything's a copy of everything because every hero has you know starts from uh, humble beginnings and goes through a major event and then you know eventually reaches success in these certain paths. But uh, I don't know. I mean, every yeah. creation story has to start at nothing and end up with something, so they all have that in common, right? Ultimately,
0: true. Yeah. And, and what's more interesting is that the things that are different. So obviously, the music, right? So there's music yeah. is is the theme throughout the Ainol Indelay creation. have first, the music is, I mean, the Ainur don't even realize that their their music that they're making is going to be used as a vision of the world to be, that is to come. Um, but it is. Mm-hmm. And and so Iluvatar, and, and, and the, you have the very powerful scene in the beginning where you have three themes of music, and you need a second and third theme because Melkor comes in with discord and uh, tries to overpower the, the, the first existing theme. And there's a second theme that Eluvitar stands up and gives, and that's which it, is gentle, and the, yeah. the discord overwhelms that. And there's a third theme that he gives, which it turns out is the is the um, going to be the creation of the children of Eluvitar, and it's it's beauty. It's said in this text is in its sadness. It's it's it has this sweet melody which is sad and beautiful, and the discord can't overcome it. That it just weaves itself. It uses the discord to. To um, weave itself further um, and make itself some, something different and new, but which is not overcome. So this whole theme of music is very powerful to me, um, and and I uh, and I've always loved it as part yeah, of yeah. I think
2: that's that's something that you brought up on the the B reads is that for Tolkien, music is in everything. Uh, the elves are always singing. Bilbo's always singing. Like there's there's uh, and e- even the. Uh, even the orcs in Mordor, they have their songs, I and mean, it's just like the like like song and music are somehow interwoven into everything. Yeah, and, and was it's funny. Like
1: it occurred to me, it's sort of like um, sound is the very first creative thing that we can do as a human being, right? You come out of the womb crying, right? That is that is creation in a way. That's sound. That's the very first thing that you can do, and so the very first, the very most basic form of of creation or subcreation creation in Tolkien's terms would be. Would be creating music or creating some sort of uh, cohesive approach to the sound that we make, Uh, and that's you know, child children learn that at the very young ages. They're creating the ability to communicate with people just by crying or by smiling or doing those little things or laughing. The little things that uh, are are creative in that way. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Something that jumped out to me with the Ina Lindelay is that kind of like what Michael was saying about how Tolkien is kind of uh, almost going to the the playbook going to genesis because um, if you look at a lot of other creation myths uh, especially at the time when moses wrote genesis it was a lot of things that were creating out of chaos and genesis on the other hand is all about how one the one true living god created ex nihilo out mm-hmm. of his own creative power just by using his word brought in to existence everything that exists and if you looked at a lot of the creation myths that were around at that time there was there was like pre-existent matter stuff that was already there that you know was either at war or you know demigods fighting against other demigods and then that that collision or that chaos produced what we see now um so I, I, for me that jumped out to me right away that Tolkien is is very much um, kind of putting his own faith into his own world that he's creating um that this this is kind of like a a way of tolkien (laughs) sub-creating
1: yeah and it's funny because i think when you go into um the discord that is yeah uh, that that is created by melkor it's because let me find the quote um because he sought to be a creator right he had this is what he wrote uh, he had gone off and he being Melkor had gone often alone into the void places seeking the imperishable flame, which mm-hmm. is the flame of creation ultimately, uh, for desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own. Um, and then later, Lubatar says, no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me. So he's saying like, you you still, you aren't able to create on your own. You can sub-create. You can use the, the things that I've given you that uh, allow you to have a reflection of my creation, but you can't create. And an Melkor's goal, in the same way that uh, I mean, I guess you know. I mean, the Satan Melkor parallel is there for certain, uh, but you know, he sought to take power unto himself, and by doing that, he sowed discord and distrust, and uh, and things meant for disaster that ultimately were still, you know, turned turned in some ways to the good,
0: into the creation that um, that Luvatar had set before them. Yeah, that's right. it, it's that last thing that you said that I, it's always so fascinating. Where Tolkien is explicitly putting in the text. He does it, he says it, Iluvatar says it directly to Melkor when Melkor is singing Discord, or after he does, that he says, everything that you have done, you'll see that it is used, it'll be used to the glory of the whole. And in other words, it can't it can't wreck it. And then he yeah, okay. goes on and points out in specific to Ulmo at the end of the Aina the, the Aino Lindale, um, he points out an example of how what melkor apparently brings is extreme heat and extreme cold whether you're talking about his glance or even in the formation of a of the world itself um and so and so eluvatar goes and points out to olmo lord of the waters that that the extreme heat and extreme cold of melkor produces the beauty of the snowflakes and then from the evaporation of the oceans the the gentle rains that come back down so that even so that so that something more beautiful is brought out of
2: the ocean um
0: mm-hmm. from even from melkor's discord
2: how do you guys feel about um this this in particular there's this idea that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me nor can any alter the music in my despite it, this idea that you know it seems like for tolkien for uh, a um that it's almost like everything is predestined. That everything that we read later on, say in The Lord of the Rings, it's something that it was already sung about. So how does that? How does that go into free will? How does that go into? Maybe my mind's the only one that went there. Yeah, well,
1: yeah, yeah. That's well, okay. and that,
2: that. That's what jumped out to me reading this. Is that even is <clears throat> even Iluvatar, right? I should say Iluvatar even turns Melkor, and and uses Melkor to, to make a, a, make a story that is, is made better in the end for like well, a more, and, a more ultimate good.
1: Yeah. And the interesting thing is, right. They, they witness this creation as a vision, but not as natural creation to begin with. It is. And, and so first they, they hear it, they hear it. They don't have any sight. They don't have any vision at all. The Louvatar grants them the vision and they see this vision of the the world and they see the the elves and they see this, the history unfolding before them, kind of like, looking at a timeline and you can kind of see it from start to finish kind of in a, in a third person perspective kind of way. Uh, but it's all taken away. And he makes the point, I'm trying to find a quote right now. Maybe one of you have it where he doesn't, he, they don't know the end of all things still, right? They, they, right. they have an understanding. And so it's sort of like, this is what you can create. If you, if, if my music is, is brought to fruition, I don't know if it's saying that everything is is set in motion and this is the way it is.
0: So the Ainur split after the music is made and after Iluvatar reveals the vision to them of what the world is to be. The world that is to be, I should say. And they split and the ones that enter, that desire to go into the world and enter it, um, those are the Valar. So they have a new name now. Right. And presumably there are Ainur who do not, not just presumably, he says so. But he says two things to build on what you were saying, Jonathan. He says, but when the valor entered into Ea, they were first astounded and then at a loss, for it was as if naught was yet made, which they had seen in vision. And all was but on point to begin, and yet unshaped, and it was dark. To which my mind went, you mean formless and void? (laughs) (laughs) All right, okay. So so, um, with the addition of the great music, then they begin, so they begin the work of shaping, and then the part you were talking about where it says that they didn't know the end of things was somewhere else. It does say that basically that the music was almost unfinished, in a sense, and there was theirs to finish. And so there are parts of the themes later on that they did not, even they didn't fully see or understand. And they're especially taken with the chil- children of a right? Yeah. That's the reason. It says explicitly, that is why the Ainur, who become the Valar, seek to enter the world because they want to unfold and prepare this world for the children of Iluatar, and so um, who are the subject of Iluatar's third theme of music. There are three themes in the the music, and the children of are the third, and so so it's really interesting that they don't see all all, um, ends, so to speak. With regard to the children, and we'll see that more and more in the in throughout the Silmarillion, there will be references to the gaps in knowledge of the Valar, mighty though they are.
1: Yeah, it, it sort of opens up the whole conversation of why is it that uh, the Valar needed to be uh, appealed to in order to actually take part in the in the history of Middle Earth in a way, right? Outside of outside of uh, uh, their thrones, essentially. Uh, and, and, and here it's because may, I mean, maybe you know they, they, they love them and they're like the children who you love, but man, they just are going awry and like maybe they just need to learn on their own, but then you see that. Anyway, it brings up a whole conversation about how much do they really know and how much do they not know. They, they know the road that they're on, but they don't know all the sites that they'll see along the way. Right. Um, there, there are new things that happen and there are things that surprise them, but things that don't surprise them. Uh, yeah,
2: it's, a, it's an interesting discussion I think the part that uh, Michael was touching on there um, about how the Valar, let's see, it's, it's, it's towards the end where it says, uh, even as Olmos spoke, this is on page 19, and while the Ainur were yet gazing upon this vision, it was taken away and hidden from their sight, and it seemed to them that in a moment they perceived a new thing, darkness, which they had not seen known before except in thought. But they had become enamored of the beauty of the vision, engrossed in the unfolding of the world which came there to being, and their minds were filled with it, for the history was incomplete, and the circles of time not full wrought when the vision was taken away. And some have said that the vision ceased ere the fulfillment of the dominion of men and the fading of the firstborn. Wherefore, though the oh, music yeah. is over all, the Valar have not seen, as with sight, the later ages or the ending of the world. I kind of, I kind of took that to mean that the the music has played, the music has gone to the end, mm-hmm. uh, and and mm-hmm. finished. But the the valor themselves, they they like when I think earlier on when they're when they're singing their parts, and then they start getting together into groups and they start singing together, and then they start making harmonies and they start they don't even know, they don't even know what they're singing to begin with, and I I I, I found that was kind of interesting that. Like I, The Valar don't know, but I think it's very clear for Tolkien that eluvatar knows, and, and he he knows the beginning from the end.
1: Yeah, and remember, the Valar don't know what happens to men. It's interesting, but they do know, the one thing that, that still strikes me is they do know that there is, you know, there, there will be a last battle in the end, right? That, and, and this is this is going forward into, which is what I think what Tolkien uh, uh, referred to as the probably closest thing is Ragnarok, uh, the Norse myth of the end of the world. Uh, but here, uh, they know it's, uh, it's called the Dagor, Dagor, Dagorath, uh, when Melkor walks the door of night and there's a great final battle and they
0: know that's coming, but they still don't know those, those things along the way, I guess. What I love as a kind of interesting, I don't want to say counterpoint, but I'll say it that way, um, to what Dan was saying about the predestined nature of things is that one of the interesting things about Tolkien's creation story is that he, um, Iluvatar, clearly puts a tremendous emphasis on the choice of the Valar in their in their to do their part in the subcreation. It says specifically that he hearkens to them, so he just sort of sits at first and listens to them sing, and he uses their song. He doesn't control their song; he uses it. In fact, we know he doesn't control it because they they develop these new melodies and Melkor comes up with his own stuff, which sows discord and the stands and and interjects to other times because of that. So he isn't controlling Melkor or the others, the the other harmonies that he's, he's listening, he's hearkening to them. And then, and then of course, adding in what they never guessed was that that he would add in through the flame imperishable, actual life and actual creation from their music, um, but their music is freely chosen. In the same way, it makes you right. The only the only way that
1: true creation happens is through Lubatar, right? Through, through the creation of of Ea and Arda, uh, and this might be moving forward a little bit. of It's kind of kind of the same thing that happens with Aule and the dwarves in the creation of those. We can get into that at that point, so that yeah, we don't yeah, we don't want to get into details of that. Yet, but it's an interesting. It's an an interesting parallel right there.
0: The great elf versus dwarf debate. I'm looking (laughs) forward to it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I I thought, you know, we've talked about the flame imperishable a few times, uh, which just so that everybody knows it, it harkens directly to Gandalf when he says, I'm a servant of the secret fire. Right. When Mm -hmm. he talks to the Balrog and that secret fire is the, you know, and I always loved how, when I first read this, that that occurred to me and I was like, Oh wow, that just ties everything together right away, and I love that part. Yeah. Um, there's an immediate like connection between the Lord of Rings.
0: Right, yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty clearly the consensus on the secret fire part. So what's interesting? Well, another thing
1: that was interesting to me is like the the the, the concentration that's put on water and the sea. Mm. What is it so much? And I don't know. Maybe you guys caught it or, or in your other readings, but what is it about the sea? Why is the sea? even right here, right? It's obviously important to the elves, but he makes it a point. Is it because like you said, Michael, you think that uh, it, it is that um, those two, those two counterpoints of the hot and the cold, what happens with water and the beauty of the the, the rain and the, and the ice and the heat and the cold, like, is that it? Or is, w- what is it about the water? I mean, just, I don't know. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Great question. Um, um, he said it's because, really interesting because Olmo, yeah, hmm. Lord of the Waters, brother of, is is the only one that I think that Olivetar talks to directly, besides Melkor in this, speaks individually, I should say, besides Melkor. Um, he speaks directly to all of them, but as far as individually called out. And, and so the waters are just so, they're such a potent theme in Tolkien, almost like they have their own music, the elves oh, are always okay. listening, right? I just read, yeah. the, I just read the part where Legolas says that, uh, mentions that to mm. the to the company as they're traveling, that he's never seen the sea, but that he hears that, um, he hears it calling to him and that the elves sometimes lose themselves on the shores. Uh, you know, per- uh,
1: I just reread this quote that I had underlined and I think I just kind of missed it the first time. So let me, let me read it here and see if it kind of sticks out to you because he wrote, uh, uh, and it is said by the Eldar that in water there lives yet the echo of the music of the Ainur more than in any substance else that, in this, that is in this earth. And many of the children of Lubatar hearken still and it to the voices of the sea and yet not know for what they listen. So it's the music is in the water. I didn't, I just. There we you, go. There we go. The question <laughs> down. The answer was like right in my face. So that wasn't, that, that it wasn't it a rhetorical is, question. That were... was not a rhetorical <laughs> question. No, I was just, you know, I was reading it for the joy of it. And like, I just kind of missed that, that. Wow. So the, the the you don't think of water as musical necessarily, though certainly Tolkien does. Um, but it is it is brash, abrasive, but it can certainly also be beautiful. Uh, and I like that. I like that. All right.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and he. So we have we have uh, air, water, and um, earth mentioned with the three. Is that a band? Manwe, Ulmo, and Aule. Earth, wind, and fire. Thanks,
1: <laughs> Yes. Another right, um, yeah.
0: another music reference, perhaps.
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. I thought it was interesting too. Like, um, the, the, yeah, they have that, and then but then Melkor is Melkor is just the Lord of Darkness, ultimately, The Lord of Destruction. But he, his his brother, right, in the mind of Iluvatar, was Manwe, uh, which is an interesting. Thing because I guess the two most powerful I would guess are the two most perhaps the the most uh, the the parts that influenced the song the most is maybe the best way of saying it
0: hmm.
1: I don't know that those two were the ones that created the most even though Manway is not really mentioned in that but perhaps that's why they were seen as brothers in that sense because their subcreation was greater than the others I don't know um,
0: Yeah he specifically says that Manway was quote the noblest of the Ainur
1: mm-hmm. so
0: so there's that. And Aule is the greatest in skill and knowledge. Um, but he says, scarce less than uh, to Melkor. So it's interesting because Melkor and Aule share something, which we'll see later, mm-hmm. some, some, some hints of. Um, but uh, they have some differences, too, in how they approach making. I loved the part when Eluvitar reveals the world that will be created from the music and i knew we're all shocked and then
2: it says that um
0: that they entered
2: Should sort of have. is this where uh, tolkien is very binary oh geez
1: i had that yeah don't listen <laughs> not not yet dan too soon, too oh, okay, soon. Right, okay well i can't
0: find the quote what? but i'll i'll say it that basically all of them entered the world, the ones who became enamored, they became enamored of the children of Iluvatar. That was the thing that surprised them the most, was that there would be mm. new sparks of life, I think new I have thinking and, and free-willy creatures with will, and, and that the desire to prepare the world for those creatures was what drove the Ainur who, who became the Valar to come down into the world, that they were so excited to prepare the world for, and Melkor, and that Melkor even fooled himself, it says. To thinking mm-hmm. that that was his real his purpose was to, yeah. to that it, that he was going to go down and he was going to tame the extreme heat and cold that he had wrought into the music, um, you know, for the for the purposes of, of preparing the world for the children that he had even fooled himself. Yeah. And then it quickly says, but that wasn't his real purpose. His real purpose yeah. was to dominate them. Here's, here,
1: here's the quote: "It's uh, and he feigned even to himself at first that his desire to go thither to Arda and order all things for the good of the children of, of the Lúvatar, controlling the turmoils of the heat." and the cold that had come to pass through him. But he desired rather to subdue to his will, both elves and men, envying the gifts with which Iluvatar promised to endow them. And he wished himself to have subjects and servants and to be called Lord and to be master over other rules. Yeah. 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 Dan, I I think this is an interesting quote, Dan, that you just, you brought up a little bit ago, ago, which has been used lately uh, to point out that Tolkien clearly thought gender was fluid
2: <laughs> do do people bring up this text in that way?
1: It has been brought up recently uh both that, on Twitter that, and in uh I can't remember which article it was. I don't think it was
2: bright That but... token token was woke and this is this is what oh. this oh, is oh, yeah. how. This is how. So the quote is this.
1: Uh this is talking about uh, the Valar coming to Arda. But when they desire to clothe themselves the Valar take upon them forms, some as of male and some as a female that for that difference of temper they had even from their beginning. But it is but and it is but bodied forth in the choice of each, not made by the choice. Even as with us, male and female it may be shown by the raiment, but is not made thereby.
0: And people people conclude from this what exactly?
1: Uh, gender is fluid.
0: Uh,
2: it kind of sounds like he's saying the opposite. Yes, it that, that they, it's they not don't... it's not made by the choice. It's it's even as with male and female, you put on different types of clothes but that doesn't make you something that you're yeah, not. I
1: know. I know. It's funny. They stop at the semicolon, which is, but yeah. when they desire to clothe themselves, the valor take upon them form Some is male, some is female. And then they don't read the rest of it.
0: Yeah. Which because is the very, the very next few words for that difference of temper. That is the difference of temper between male and female. And female. They had even from their beginning. In other words, yeah. although of course in body, they aren't inherently male or female because they don't inherently have bodies. Um, they nevertheless have the temper, the male or female temper. In other words, Tolkien is being more binary than you, su- you suspect. It's like yeah. it's, he he even this yeah. is the this is the funny thing to me is the Valar instead of being genderless because all obviously the Valar are spirits, right? They're not mm-hmm. they're not bodied creatures. That's right. But instead of so instead of going with the they have no gender, he actually goes down the gender path he says they they generally appear as as male and female they even marry whatever that means with Valar. so so there's a binary that he's reinforcing even with technically genderless in the human sense creatures so yeah it doesn't it does not prove what they think it proves it perhaps proves the opposite they are who they are from the very beginning and they were never they they never had a choice in how to change that for themselves. Correct, and they can appear in whatever bodies they choose, but they they choose to to appear in the bodies when they have bodies. That yeah. is according to their temper, namely their male or oh, female what? temper. So <laughs> so it's a it's it, I I love that passage. There is a,
1: there is one quote. Sometimes, like when I when I read through this, we can get into the details of the, um, the cosmology and and the relationships and the histories. Sometimes I just like to break down like exactly what Tolkien is is written because it's just so it's put so well the prose is so well done like like I think you've mentioned before Michael like his prose is probably some of your favorite prose in, in, out of everything but for me certainly that's true yes um, the one quote that really really stood out to me uh, in this in this read through was um, near the end where he talks about Melkor uh, and how this is a quote he wrote and the light of the eyes of melkor was like a flame that withers with heat and pierces with a deadly cold and you can read over that quickly but the the phrase a flame that withers with heat right you think of like when, when there's when there's a lot of oxygen flames get huge and get bright and everything but when when something is incredibly hot and there's a flame in a lot of heat it actually gets smaller because it's surrounded by such utter heat and uh, and I love that because it made me think about it for a second about how utterly uh, piercing Melkor was with his with well, the the light of the eyes of Melkor and and how that is consuming in such a way that the heat can't or the, the the flame can't even grow because it is
0: so hot in that piercing gaze. I just, That's right. I just love
1: that.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's, a, it's lovely. His prose. We're going to say this a lot, or maybe we'll, we'll we'll all refrain from saying it too much. But uh, this is our first episode, so I'm going to say it once to <laughs> agree with you. prose is it is in the highest class of English prose Mm -hmm. that there is. He's not Shakespeare, but his prose is surprisingly clear and potent and descriptive. And like you just said, you can read over it too quickly sometimes and not appreciate it. But when you read it aloud or when you hear hear it on an audiobook read aloud, Mm -hmm. it just sometimes it just slams me. I just I think, whoa, I want to hear that again. Just so such beautiful, beautiful prose. Uh,
1: it ends with uh, the mm-hmm. Valar and Melkor going head to head and how uh, Arda was established.
0: Right. Uh, and, begins you know, with battles,
1: begins with battles and we will end with the battle. I guess is the uh, the way
0: of things with lots of battles in the middle. So, uh,
1: one thing that I want to kind of do each week, if it well, you know, most weeks we'll have other things, too, but uh, a little section I like to call
2: if you like Tolkien.
1: And this will be things from Tolkien stuff, from Lord of the Rings stuff, to maybe some other things. If you like Tolkien, this might be a good other thing to bring up. And the one thing I want to bring up today is Martin Shaw's reading of The Silmarillion. It uh, it came out in 1988, 1998, and I got it pretty much right after that on CD. Uh, it can now be gotten on Audible. I think it's like 20 bucks, or you, if you really want to buy the CDs, I think they're only on eBay for around $50 right now. Uh, but I really, and I don't, I don't think either of you guys have listened to it much, but Martin Shaw's voice, like the he has a depth, um, a gravity, There's, he brings uh, a foundational voice to this when I read it through the first time, because the first time I read it was 1999, I think it was, uh, <clears throat> and listening to it was was incredibly helpful for two reasons. One, it forced me to get through it, even the hard parts where I was lost. Two it really helped with all the pronunciations because I think we can all agree that the pronunciations are ridiculously hard sometimes. And trying to remember the differences between all the names can be really difficult. And so hearing him say it, it gave me the ability, and sometimes you lost it, but at least you got to push through, even when you were like, who is this? And you don't tend to go back and reread things, but you can kind of remember who they are once you start getting through the, the tales a little bit more. Uh, and it's just a great way, it's a it's a pleasant listen. Um, it is not too overbearing, like um, like it's not slow. Uh, And there's the main sections have these little uh, these little music hits at the end that I really like. Um, So anyway, if if you're finding the Silmarillion a hard hard read, pick this up. And if hey, if you want to go on Audible, get the one month subscription and get like the one credit for free. Get the Silmarillion and then cancel your Audible subscription. You can still have it (laughs) still have it in the uh, in your in your
0: app. So that's what I'd recommend to do. I like Uh, that. And if there are any budding artists out there, what I will say to you is, as you read the Silmarillion, or if you li- just want to listen to us talk about it, stretch your artistic muscles because so much Tolkien art, um, of course, naturally focuses on the Lord of the Rings. There's so many, so much good art that can be done with regard to the Silmarillion that hasn't been done. Well, guys,
1: thanks again for bringing this bringing this to a close. So I guess for the very first episode here, we've got uh, quite a few, quite. A few left to do uh, next week. We're going to be going through the Vala Quinta, which is only a few pages. Again, it's not that long, but it's an account of the of valor and the Maya according to the world of guilt, which is a, a great sort of getting a little bit deeper into the Silmarillion now, not just the wide angle or how the world was created, but who are these beings and what are their uh, dispositions, things like that. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.
0: Take care. all. All right.
2: Michael, Dan, and Jonathan want to thank you, the listener, for joining us. Visit us at
0: theonering.com, your source for everything Tolkien, where you can comment on this episode and join the conversation. This is Austin Robertson bidding you farewell.
2: May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks.